This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. It's episode 281 of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast, and I am in Atlanta, Georgia, once again, sitting out on the lovely, lovely patio of the Three Taverns Imaginarium, and talking with me today are Brian Purcell and Neil Engelman from Three Taverns. Welcome to the podcast, Brian and Neil. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. I guess we should say, that's Brian. That's me. That's you. And Neil. Neil, I'm here. Okay, just so people can follow (laughs) along at home get those voices locked in. Um, I'm on this Atlanta trip talking to some uh, interesting brewers. Uh, we've had a lot of Three Taverns beers over the years. Uh, your folks have been good about keeping us into that. We've reviewed plenty, tasted plenty. I've never been to the brewery, and so I was excited to, to get a chance to come out here and talk to you all about brewing. Uh, super, been super impressed over the years with all the beers that we've had. And you have, have done some interesting projects recently like a collaboration with Pilsner or Kell. Uh, we're going to talk about some of those things. We're going to talk about some of the beers and some of the ways that the beer program has evolved and uh, some of the ways that you have uh, stamped a Three Taverns identity coming out of that kind of Belgian brewing roots, um, but now exploring a kind of broader range. Uh, still with plenty to do in the yeast realm, uh, still plenty of, uh, with fermentation-focused beers, um, but also building beers for a, you know, a... a, a, a even larger scope uh, right. than you may have initially found on. We're going to talk about all those things, but first, for nearly 30 years, GD Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. GD stands above the rest as the only chiller manufacturer that engineers your glycol piping for free. GD also stands alone as the only chiller manufacturer with an in house team of installers and engineers with 30 years of real world field labor experience in breweries, wineries, and distilleries. Contact the Total Glycol System design experts today at gdchillers.com. Also, still emptying those overflowing waste bins full of low fills, crushed and damaged cans, or undercarbonated beer every canning day? It's time to fill like a pro. Email contact us at probrew.com for more information on ProFill can fillers from ProBrew. ProFill can fillers use rotary true counter-pressure gravity filling and seaming technology to run at speeds of 100 to 300 cans per minute with less than 30 parts per billion DO pickup and less than 1% product waste at the filler. Stop wasting perfectly good beer. Email ProBrew at contactus at probrew.com today. ProBrew is a subsidiary of Technoblend, now a Promoc brand. It's a fun one, you know, looking at your, your board and talking to Neil earlier, you have a nine ninth anniversary barrel uh, barley wine on yep. tap right now. And, uh, you know, we are recording this the day before our ninth anniversary of craft beer and brewing ninth anniversary of the, uh, really of the first day that we were fully operational full time. It's an anniversary. As a counts. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's funny that to see that we've been following a similar arc of timeline along those ways. Uh, but Brian, why don't you, you know, share some of that history of, uh, of, uh, three taverns, both one, your own personal, uh, craft beer journey that led you to starting a brewery and then, uh, you know, uh, the history of three taverns as, as it's proceeded. Um, <clears throat> sure. I'd love to. Um, so I was, uh, introduced to home brewing by a friend of mine in Portland, Oregon on a trip out there to his wedding. So after a day of drinking Portland beer and this was uh, 15, this was 2000, 2000. 
Okay. Uh, a day filled with drinking from the Portland beer bars. And then we went to this wedding party he had, and he was serving homebrew beer. And I was like, wow, you can do that at home. He's like, yeah. And this is the same guy that I traveled through Europe with on a, a guy's trip in an old car. And uh, at a stop off in that trip, we ended up in Brussels one night, and a surprise trip. And that was my first introduction to the big Trappist ales and uh, that they make in Belgium. And I fell in love with those beers that night. We actually headed out about 3 a.m. out of Brussels and we... Uh, my friend Rodney, who is the guy that now lives in Portland, was driving the car. The other two of us were asleep, and Rodney decides to drive through the French border without stopping. Uh, <laughs> they chased us down with guns, uh, and uh, I was. Uh, I, they wake me up. I was in the back seat. Brian get out of the car. I'm like, "What's going on?" Well, Rodney tried to go through the border without stopping, and uh, so the next thing I know, a, a van screeches up to a halt as we're standing there with uh they pull out a dog dog goes right into the car we had just come out of amsterdam by the way and um <laughs> so next thing i know we're being strip searched and uh thankfully we got out of that uh unscathed they let us go we drove on to the next destination on that trip but i came back from that trip inspired by the belgian brewing uh, the belgian beers and later was introduced to homebrewing by Rodney. I came back to Atlanta and I'm like, I want to homebrew. I want to learn to brew. And so I kind of picked that up along the way. And then Belgian beers became my thing. Uh, they're, to me, some of the, the hardest beers to master in terms of that dry finish and uh, the, the drinkability with all that complexity. And you're uh, scarred for life. Was, and yep. you just, you've been trying to work it out ever since. Ever since, <laughs> yes. Uh, and I, I, unfortunately, I think I did finally work it out because when I started Three Taverns in, uh, uh, well, nine years ago, almost 10 years ago, uh, we started out as a Belgian-style brewery. And I, and I loved, when I was brewing, making all kinds of beers, Belgian-style beers. Uh, the uh, IPAs were a favorite of mine, but I, I had to decide who we were going to be, what kind of beer we were going to be, and maybe that introduction back in brussels and the and the sketchy night we had afterwards convinced me that we need to start out as a belgian brewery so that's how we started the journey of three taverns apparently you know drinking too much belgian beer gets you into escapades <laughs> with uh french law enforcement which you know which, i mean yeah well it's of course it, you wanna... it's fun when you end up on the other side with yeah, uh, yeah, another pint but it's a good story um, yeah, to tell yeah, for sure yeah so <laughs> Then, uh, we, so I thought, well, if I'm going to start a Belgian brewery, how do I go about that? What, right. what do I do? Because I was a home brewer. I didn't want to start a brewery um, without some professional guidance. And right. I, I um, met Peter Buchart of New Belgium and was uh, telling him about my vision for a Belgian-style brewery, but I wanted to hire a Belgian brewer. And he uh, said, well, what about, I, I have a nephew that I think would be interested. And so that was Joran van Hinderachter, who I think you're gonna meet later this week. And uh, he uh, moved over from Belgium and was our first brewmaster of three taverns. Uh, and it was uh, it was a great start. We were making Belgian style, and when I say Belgian style beers, I mean beers, the traditional beers with the Belgian yeast. And uh, that's how we started the journey. But Belgian beers, um, kind of had their moment in the U.S. craft beer scene, and then it started to decline. And as a business owner, 
I needed to make a living. <laughs> we sure. needed to sell sure. beer. So we started to move I outside. Think the, way, of, the way that I like to look at that is not, not, not just from that perspective, but that if you're not making beer that's connecting with people where people want to be, and you are also in the hospitality business and you want to make the things that are going to connect with people and make them happy. And if it's not this thing that you want to make, you want to find the thing that, that you want to make that people also want to drink from you. And you know, that's just, it's finding that kind of, that, that connection. Yeah. It, I, just, I, I agree. it makes it sound less crass that way, you know, but I agree yeah, with you. Yeah. It's true. It's like, it is a hospitality business. And if you're only going to try to satisfy yourself, that's not hospitable. You, you make you make profit when you connect the things that you're passionate about doing with people that are passionate about consuming those. And sometimes when those passions are misaligned, you know, it's hard to make the business work and you want to make the business work. But right. the business not working is not that there's a problem with what you're making. It's just always, you know, sometimes yeah. it's just the audience isn't there for it. Agree. And it's to me, it's really about just if you're going to go in a direction, you don't always have to, it doesn't have to be your favorite, right? but you want to do it the very best you can do it, the very best it can be done. That's where Neil and I, who's now our brewmaster yep. and has uh, taken the mantle of three taverns in, um, in the most superior way, but Neil and I track together on that. It's like we don't always brew the beers that we want to drink or that are our favorites, but if we're going to make a beer, if Neil's going to make a beer, he's going to try to make it the best way you can, you know, do the research to go into that style and have that process fine tuned so that once you get the finished product, hopefully your intention matches what you were looking for. And yeah. uh, if people like it as well, that's great. But also we're trying to expose as many people to a wide range of styles. So something for everybody something that I've been a big believer in. Sure, in this location right here, next to a large twenty five hundred person concert venue, definitely focused around people, has to you know be the kind of the kind of brewery location, right? That everyone can find the thing that they connect with there, and so of course that changes and the you know the the necessary approach and that kind of thing. Anyway, what's your what's your story through beer sound like, Neil? Um, so went to school in North Carolina at Appalachian State. Um, was in Western North Carolina before it became the kind of beer hub that it is sure, now. Sure. Um, kind of learned about craft beer there and experimented with, you know, trying different six packs every Friday to kind of see what I liked. And obviously double IPAs, like most brewers, I think that was kind of their first foray into craft beer. So drank a lot of Maharaja, a lot of 90 minute back in like 2007, 2008 when I was in school. Yeah. Um, but ended up getting an internship upon graduation to live out in Bend, Oregon, which beer mecca there were sure, 20 sure. years ahead of where george was at now so uh it was really cool uh first stop in bend when i pulled into town was the shoots brew pub uh just right downtown bend sure. beautiful spot um drank a black butte porter really enjoyed it and um uh, kind of expanded my horizon that way but obviously spending six months on the west coast you try a lot of different styles a lot of breweries that we just didn't have that number of breweries back in town um, so yeah, it was really cool to kind of see that and really drive my passion for beer even further. And, um, after my internship was done, we moved, moved back to Atlanta. Um, was it a brewing internship or it was not, it was unrelated. A, okay. okay. Event, event planning. That's what hey. I thought I wanted to do. Sure, and, uh, sure. I do enough of that with, uh, you know, putting on anniversaries and festivals <laughs> at breweries. Right, so right. it's like somewhat using that, but, yeah. um, 
Yeah. So you got the beer bug. Would you? When did you start brewing? Um. So that was back in the summer of 2008. I got a homebrew kit uh, 2008 for Christmas. So yeah. yeah. Uh, cool synchronicity timing wise with that coming up. But yeah, got a kit and uh, I was a partial mash kit. So there was some extract in it. Felt like cheating to me. So I wanted to uh, go all grain. So by batch three, I was going all grain and uh, just invested my time in reading, getting the literature I needed to kind of uh, learn more about the process. And I feel like that's tied into where I'm at now. Just like you have to keep reading to further your education to kind of stay in tune with what everybody else is doing. Sure. um, Yeah, I was doing it even back in the homebrew days. And that was 2008. My first brewery job was at Wrecking Bar Brew Pub back in 2011. Um, It's one of the original staff members got into the brewery a few months after they opened. So my first uh, foray into professional brewing was November 15th, 2011. And I've been in the industry since then. So coming up on over 11 years, it's pretty wild. But uh, as far as Wrecking Bar goes, learned a lot of what to do correctly. I learned a lot of what not to do. It was a lower stress kind of a brew pub environment. So beers last two to three weeks on tap. Right, right. A lot of experimentation. It was a... you know, similar to what we're doing here as far as like almost like pub style brewing, but uh, spent nine years there. And a good buddy of mine, John Roberts, was opening up Bold Monk Brewing Company, which is Upper West Side near Monday night. Um, wanted to get on board with that because Belgian beers have always been a thing for me as well. And sure. it was a massive brew pub that was going to focus on, you know, those kinds of styles. They had a whole fooder room built out with a room for barrels as well. So it's a very elaborate setup. And I uh, was there for the build out, got to see a lot of the brewing of those styles like repeatedly and kind of fine tune that process, which very educational for uh, technique, but also from just the design of a brewery. You know, it was a great experience. And uh, then COVID hit. So, you know, as yeah. everybody felt that it was yeah. a restaurant and brewery. So, um, you know, found out about three taverns that had an opening for, had brewer position. And at that point had, what, nine years of experience, had seen just about everything from styles to issues that come up in the brewery from like steam, glycol, you know, you name it, whatever could happen, I'd seen it. So I felt like I was finally in position to put myself out there for a larger scale brewery. And I'd found out about the Imaginarium opening as well. So you kind of you get the production experience with the Decatur location. You get the pub style experience from Imaginarium. So the way I saw it was the best of both worlds and a lot more management of more people. You know, we have a sure, sure. pretty large team. I'd always been on smaller groups, so had been a manager, but this was the first time managing just solely beer production, not just like restaurant staff as well. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's been a crazy ride and still doing it. So. One of the things I've been impressed with is just how like close and tight the you know the Atlanta Brewers scene is. That right. you know, as I was talking to uh, John Sherry at uh, Little Cottage, yeah, you know, they've got boxes with 
you know, uh, Nine Ponds, like IPA, you know, oh, they yeah. buy bottles from you because they buy them in such a small quantity. Right. It's perfect for him. You know, they can just pick up some of these from you. And so, so there's, you know, these case boxes of, of your beer, you know, with their bottles because that's just what they do. Yeah. Um, you know, that if somebody needs an ingredient, they just make the call and, uh, yeah. these days, and that, that, you know, folks have worked for other people, but everything stays pretty cordial, you know, friendly, right. And very supportive. And so, uh, you know, it's an interesting, but also kind of self-supporting scene of brewers oh, yeah. here in Atlanta. That's uh, that's very cool. We all want to see everybody succeed. And there's so many new breweries now that, you know, for us that have been in the business for almost a decade in Atlanta, it's great to see the fact that Atlanta has a scene that's worth checking out now, you know? And, uh, indeed, indeed. That's why I'm here. That's why I right. just booked this last minute trip to come record some podcasts with some interesting brewers because, uh, hey, here we are. Anyway, let's talk about some of the beers themselves. Before we do that, are you looking for innovation in your next beverage breakthrough? Think outside the puree box and let your brand stand out. With Old Orchard's Craft Concentrate Blends, even smoothie seltzers can benefit from the extra boost of flavor and color. Old Orchard is based in the Greater Grand Rapids, Michigan area, also known as Beer City, USA and supplies craft beverage categories ranging from beer, wine, and cider to seltzer, spirits, and kombucha. To join the core of Old Orchard's brewing community, learn more at oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, packaging beer can be a daunting task, but buying cans shouldn't be. American Canning provides packaging supplies at competitive prices in order quantities catered to craft. Think single truckloads and half-height pallets rather than million-can minimums. For a smooth packaging experience, also consider their ultra-compact single-operator canning machines. Pricing begins at $25,000 with quick six- to eight-week lead time on most equipment. American Canning exists to help share your craft in cans. Learn more about their ecosystem of solutions at AmericanCanning.com. So, Brian, what what beers do you all make the most of these days? Uh, What are the big big ones? uh, We have uh, our flagship, Night on Ponce IPA. It's a classic American style IPA, and we've been making that for you. Actually, in the beginning, we had a Belgian IPA called a Night in Brussels IPA, which if you think back about my earlier story, you know where that name came from. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was uh, really an American recipe, citra hops, uh, but with some candy sugar to give it a little bit of, and some of the grains were more Belgian-esque. And we use Belgian yeast. And so we launched with that. And at a certain point, it was like, I think it's time to take the Belgian yeast off of this beer, put the American yeast on and see what we got, because I think this is what our customers want. Yeah, so we yeah. did that. And I thought I needed a new a name and uh, that mirrored a night in Brussels. So our brewery is not far off of uh, Ponce de Leon Avenue, yeah. which is a famous street here in Atlanta. And so it just made sense to call it a night on punch. So that's our seven and a half percent flagship IPA. It's uh, one of uh, it, it's it's one uh, or been voted best IPA in Georgia, and we think it is obviously. But that's our flagship, and then right behind that is Rapturous, which is our raspberry sour ale. So we got into the kettle sours, the German style way of souring beers early uh, in the brewery as we were evolving and those are our really two flagship beers night night on ponce and rapturous sure sure yeah what are uh let's talk about some of the creative challenges you've tackled lately neil in the brewing world um really just staying 
on trend, but you know, it's almost like you have to do every style yeah. to be relevant. But, you know, especially with the whole Urkel collaboration earlier this year and leading up to that, I've been focusing a lot on just perfecting the lager game because yeah. I know when I go into a brewery I've never been to, I would want to try their lightest beer possible. If it's really good, I can trust some of the other beers as well. So I wanted to fine tune that to make sure that my game was strong and it obviously worked because with the Prince of Pilsen, it's another one of our core beers. We don't right. brew as much for it as we do Ponce or Rapturous, but made a few tweaks to it when I came on board and, uh, you know, it was obviously good enough. Urkel tried it and uh, got us out there. So um, Yeah, tell me about that. I mean, I, I'm curious how a Pilsner-Urkel collaboration comes about. And then I'm also I'm also curious about the beer that you all brewed together because sure. I, did, I did get some in the office that you guys sent to me. Um, you know, and it has a – I wouldn't say that it is what most people would expect from, you know, a Pilsner. It definitely sure. has this kind of, you know, big toothy malt character – um, you know, it, uh, if almost like a, this, you know, cool rustic character to it that, oh, yeah. uh, you know, in bigger bready notes than, than most people might associate with this, but talk to me a little bit about the kind of creative process behind this, like how it came to be and then, uh, how you all decided to brew a beer together. Well, uh, it, the way it came to be was the name. So, um, the, uh, Peter, sorry, who, uh, works at Pilsner Cal was, uh, doing some research for some friends of his in the theater. And he came across this beer in America called Prince of Pilsen. Uh, that was also the name of a play years ago. And I guess they were trying to recreate that in, in Pilsen. And when he saw the beer, he saw the graphic and he was very interested. So we got an email from Pilsner Kell saying, we, we think it's time for the Prince to come home. Please send us some. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we want to try it. Sure, sure. And when we were there, when Neil and I were in uh, Pilsen and Peter was telling us more of the story, he was saying that. So we saw the beer, we saw the name and we loved the graphic. Um, but uh, so send us the beer. He said, we got the beer. We looked at the beer. We opened the can and poured it into the glass and well, we'll see. He said, and then we took a drink and we're like, ah. <laughs> they know how to make beer. And that's when they sent us the email and said, we would like for you to come over and collaborate with us. They have an experimental brewery that they built on uh, on the grounds called Pivovar Proud. And that gives them the flexibility to do some beers besides Pilsner Kell. And they invited us to come over and do a, a beer for the Pilsen Liberation Festival, which is uh, something that happens every May, where they celebrate the liberation of Pilsen uh, from uh, the Nazis during World War II by the Americans. And so they wanted to call the beer Pills in Liberation. And that began the journey to this collaboration. And that's where Neil stepped in working with their brewmaster right. to kind of work out the recipe. And we brewed it here and they brewed it there. But Neil can tell you about the technique behind sure, the beer. Sure. sure. Um, so once the collaboration was set on the logistical side, their brewmaster, Lenka, started an email thread with me and talked about it, obviously, for a festival, especially there where it's such a heavy lager influence. We wanted to make a pale lager, but make it a little bit darker than Urkel. So we decided Why? We, just to make it stand out from the base beer, yeah. you know, but also be super approachable and people look at it and be like, okay, that's a beer that I would enjoy. Um, so the base beer was 99% Bohemian Pilsner malt. 
Obviously, we can't get the malt that Raquel malts for themselves. So <laughs> why not? Come on, they can still ship you some. Maybe for next year's, we can uh, we can get some of that contracted over. Yeah. But um, after talking with Lanka, we decided on Vireman for what we would use sure, here. So sure. just a floor malted Bohemian Pilsner and one percent uh, dehusk Carafa too. Hmm. So just for that touch of color, but not yeah. really getting in the way flavor wise. Yeah. Um, but they wanted to have an influence on some of the more influential American hops. So we thought Cascade is a no-brainer and Citra, just because of how prevalent it is now, it's almost, you see it in every IPA combination at any brewery. So we... First, they, they wanted to play with some American hops. They did. They can't mess with their own brand, but they can uh, right. sure mess around. I, although it's Pilsner Raquel even wants to play with yeah. American well, hops. Well, they, the they were inspired by Prince of Pilsen, actually, which yeah. is a hoppy Pilsner, and we use Citra hops in there, and that intrigued them, and so they wanted to do their own version oh, okay. of something right. like that. Yeah, And obviously, they wanted to use Sots in it because that's their sure. That's sure. the staple, so... The way we thought about it is the Sots and the Cascade with that little spicy note kind of play really well off each other. So layer those in the hot side, but some uh, late hopping with Citra to kind of give that uh, touch of lush fruitiness. But we actually did something I'd never done before. And this is something that Lanka talked about with their process, but uh, knockout dry hopping with uh, we did Cascade. So we had Cascade in the fermenter the entire time. And it kind of smoothed out those grassy, citrusy edges, but they made them just subtle enough in the finished product. Wait, wait, wait. So you're telling me that uh, that Urkel is biotransforming you know, by dry hopping at knockout full uh, with, with yeast in the tank? Uh, at People Bar Proud, I know they were at doing people, that. Okay. I don't know if they're doing that at Urkel, hey. and that might be proprietary, but... You know, interesting. It was a cool technique, and I was like, "We've I never done that." Something new every day. Yeah, I, uh, this is why we have have these conversations. Okay. Yeah. So we tried that, and I think as far as our production space, it was the longest logger time we'd given a beer. So it, yeah, I think it loggered for six weeks before we felt it was ready, and uh, you know, it, was it, just- it frustrated our sales department because <laughs> it tied up a tank longer than it needed to be tied up. Oh, but, they but can that's wait. Neil. For this kind of story, Neil was like, no, oh, yeah. this, this is the most important beer we've ever made. That's where, <laughs> sure. that was where my stubbornness me. came through. It was like, no, this is such an important beer. It's such a cool story. Let's make sure we're doing the beer justice. So cool. Cool. Let's talk a little more about that. Like, I would love to walk through this process. You mentioned sure. the grist, you know, now and hot, hot side, right. Hop additions. How do you balance the citra and the sots and that? Um, if I remember correctly, I don't have the notes in front of me, but we did a first work hop edition of citra. I believe on a 30 barrel batch, it was like three fourths of a pound, like very minimal, yeah. but you get some really integrated soft bitterness that way, but in like a fruitier profile from the citra. Um, there was now, a, the, I mean, because between Sots and Citra, you're like you're looking at like very different alphas, right? You know, Citra is a much higher alpha hop, right? Um, you know, you know, and you're and you're also talking about putting that high alpha hop in there for a long time now, right? You know, how do those did those things work together in that kind of way that you expected? It did after we put the calculations together and adjusted for our brew house. How do you balance? Like, was it more of one than the other? Um, it was way more Sots. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was, that was uh the sots was more so like in the middle to last uh, quarter of the boil. Oh, so okay. Okay. try to get some good like boiled flavor out of the sots where I think you get a lot more of that like peppery grassiness, which is what makes Raquel so great. 
because I think they have multiple editions throughout, but right. we wanted to have some notion of that in the beer, but with the American hops, the accent, the front and the back of it. So, um, how, yeah. does cit- how does Citra work as a bittering hop in that kind of thing? You mentioned that it gave it a soft bitterness. I'm, I'm, that sounds interesting to me. It was just very gentle. Huh. Being such a small addition, I think it was only equivalent to five or seven IBUs. And I think we were targeting 25 to 30. So most of that came 30 minutes to the end of boil. So mm. lots of big hop flavor and aroma, but leaving the front end of the boil open for really the boil reactions to happen to bring that malt character a little bit more up front. Um, I think that's where that balance came to play in yeah. that particular recipe. And we've tried it with a few other beers as well. Um, we have a New Zealand Pilsner that is in tanks here right now that different hops, obviously, but trying to layer the hops that way, but with all New Zealand hops. And it's came out great. We don't have it tapped yet. It's going to move over to Bright Tank in a couple of weeks. But yeah, um, some really interesting techniques that I never thought of. But after speaking with the way they wanted to approach it, it's like, you know, we're going to try it. And the brew house is obviously theirs is four vessel, double decoction setup. We have a four vessel brew house indicator, uh, steam jacketed, but a mash ton, water ton, kettle, separate whirlpool. So they decocted theirs in Czech Republic, obviously, because that's what you do with a Czech lager. Sure. And that's kind of how they wanted to build the malt character. We followed the same temperature rest that they would have via decocting, but we were using our steam on our brew house to hit each uh, step during the mash. So we could have brewed more batches that day, but I wanted the I wanted the brew deck to be specifically focused on that one beer. So we did the entire. So you six- didn't decoct, but you did step. We batch. did step it. Yeah. So I think it was like a two and a half hour process because each rest was anywhere from thirty to forty five minutes from the protein rest at one hundred ten through your beta and your alpha rest all yeah. the way up to mash out. And I think that's how we got a similar malt forwarded profile on a four and a half percent beer. And I think the step mashing was critical to getting that, but you know, uh, we step mash prints, not, albeit not that intensively, but yeah, I think you have to, to kind of build the uh, balance and it kind of counters the hops that way. So the sweetness of the malt and the body it builds gives a more of a platform for the hops to really shine. Sure. So sure. And the knockout hopping, that was a new one to me. I mean, I've heard about it with, you know, all the thialized yeasts and what you're seeing in American craft beer. This wasn't thialized by any means, but that process we hadn't even thought of doing in a lager and it worked out really well. Although now the the thial the the new the new new on the on the thial approach is to push that back post fermentation right and that uh you know instead of knockout hopping you want to you know uh hop at the very front end right mash hop basically oh, yeah. anyway um nonetheless that that's an interesting one so how much of that hop load then went into the fermenter for uh, and is this mostly citra or citra and sots is that at that point it was just cascade and oh, ferment- just cascade. okay uh yeah the citra was um at first wort hop and i believe it was a five minute edition it okay. was sots at 30 then Sots and Cascade at 10, and then Citra at Whirlpool, then Cascade in the uh, fermenter. And I believe Citra Whirlpool. Yeah. So okay. front and the back. It was a very layered hop combo. But once we decided upon it, it was like, I think it's going to get the best of every world you're looking for. You get just enough the Citra, but the Sots kind of ties the Cascade. Cascade ties the uh, Citra in. Really unique beer. And the uh, I think for a 60-barrel batch, it was just 11 pounds of Cascade. 
at knockout. So not much, but yeah. just enough to like get some essence of it. Um, that's fascinating to me. Right. And I love how weird this beer is sounding already. Right. Um, you know, so what did you ferment it with? Uh, 3470. Yeah. They have a proprietary, what they called a 3470 uh, type of strain. I think it's coming from, was it the Gambrinus Brewery that was also on site? <laughs> so, because they wanted the beer to have a different yeast profile than Urkel. Sure. But they have the Gambrinus Brewery, which is equally as historical just up the hill so that's where they're getting their yeast from but yeah yeah we used fermentus 3470 we knocked out at 47 degrees started fermentation at 48 and then let it warm up to 50 and kept it there until it was ready and obviously until we cold crashed it so and then it lagered for six weeks so yeah now you uh, I'm, I'm gonna assume you also use 3470 for prince of pilsen we do it would make logistical sense to, to right. use the same yeast there um you know how do you, has it did it work in a different way with this knockout hopping or you know is there something that you've noticed through that process that uh you know functionally or aesthetically you know that that contributed in some significant way to this whole beer i thought it clarified quite a bit more really from having the knockout hops in there, almost providing a... Uh, it's like if they're their own findings in the in the tank then. Uh. Right. We still ran it through the centrifuge because yeah. we wanted a bright, clear beer. But um, especially with six weeks of lager time and that and our intensive step mashing, I feel like the beer was pretty clear coming off the ferment and we just used a centrifuge to do the final polishing of it. And certainly one of the best beers we made of last year and probably the most memorable beer moment I've had, A, professionally, but certainly in 2022. Sure, sure. So, were, were there some parameters that you were looking for in the, like in the citra that you were using, or is this you know this is what you had because this is your selection? It was our selection yeah. and it had just come in too, if I'm not mistaken. So, really great lot, um, lots of big punchy tropical fruit. We were looking for a lot of uh, peach, mango, and obviously citrus in it. So it was one of the first beers we brewed with the new lot, and. Uh, you know, being that we didn't really have a litmus test for what it was going to do, it almost felt like a perfect beer to have it be one of the first ones with the freshly selected Citra. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's just a great hop to be able to work with. And the fact that they were inspired by it, and it's something that Three Tyrants has done for such a long time, just uh, felt like a very cool beginning to the story and the relationship with Urkel. So... And I know we, we're supposed to be doing it again with him next year, but it'll be similar beer, different hops. So, that you guys are making West Coast Pilsner, uh, and right? I, and I didn't even realize it. Oh my goodness! But it still it still had such a like Czech character to it, obviously from it did, the, it the Czech malt, but yeah. like that round that rounded malt profile that supports the hops. It's like it supported the bitterness. It made it I did have super that, drinkable. that big bready kind of, you know, malt character, obviously within the lager context. And we're not like, you know, it's right. It's scaled to the beer. It made sense within that, but it did. It felt like it, it had some heft to it. Oh yeah. Know? At four and a half percent. It was not a crispy boy in that sense. You know, right. it was, uh, yeah. And, and it was also an impetus for us, um, for both tap rooms to get the Luker side pool faucets in. Sure. So, as that beer was on tap, that's how we served it at both locations. Now we have them at both locations and we can just alternate which beers we want to pour on those. So it's become a uh, staple for three taverns at this point. So really cool. 
Very cool. Are there any other secrets that you learned from Pilsner or Cal that we can share with the entire world yeah, right I, here? I will tell you a secret <laughs> he learned, uh, which is we were able to, to, to we were able to pour. Uh, so one of the the traditions when you go on a tour of Pilsner or Cal, they take you down uh, where the, the beer is uh, conditioned in the, yeah, the, the original lagering, the hall. original lagering hall. And, and as part of the tour, the traditional tour, they, you, you get a glass and they pour the first thing Peter did is said, let's go to the, to the lagering hall. And we went down there and we were pouring our own beer out of the, out of these tanks. It was, it was amazing. But really, I think the, the moment that transcended really any other moment in my uh, career in the brewing industry. And I would say, Neil would agree in, in his is when uh, so they recreate 1940s um, the 1940s all over Pilsen and there, there are tanks and jeeps and there are camps set up and they really celebrate the American liberation of Pilsen from the Nazis it's, it's a huge weekend celebration or week long celebration and when we got there, what we learned was that they had put some of the pills and liberation into a barrel, and uh, we were going to tap that barrel on the public on the Pilsen Square and serve it to the masses as part of this. So we uh, we loaded ourselves up onto a, an army truck, and these are these are all American army trucks. I don't know where this collection comes from, and. Uh, with these uh, reenactors who were in American Army gear, and they all have this, the, it's a triangle logo. It's the uh, Pilsen, or it's the 16th Regiment of the American Army, and we use that as part of uh, the, the design. We designed sure, the sure. can. And we ride this uh, truck, we get on the back with these, and we ride this truck through the streets of Pilsen all the way to the public square, and we get off, and Neil gets to, uh, with a, a mallet, hammer, in and tapped this cask and then we just served it for free with an, uh, with an audience <coughs> of twenty thousand. Yeah. no pressure <laughs> i'm sure that cask uh, uh just uh you know quenched <laughs> all of their, the thirst for the entire uh oh yeah there yeah. it was great there was uh people were excited about the beer they were yeah. lined up the entire time till it kicked but uh yeah that was a pretty sweet experience i think uh definitely a highlight of 2022 and, and we didn't uh they didn't release it in package, but we did. Yeah. Um, and in 16 ounce cans, and and we had to get their approval for that. But we we designed the the can ourselves, and they were so impressed with it uh, that they are putting it in the archive museum and the uh, on Pilsner Kell. Uh, yeah. You're into the Pilsner Kell history. It, officially. Now. Yeah. That's yeah. fantastic. Now yeah. you mentioned earlier that uh, you know that has influenced in some ways how you now are thinking about making other loggers. Sure. You know, you mentioned that in the New Zealand Pils, is that just in the scope of that knockout hopping or are there other other things you've picked up and uh, and been able to apply to some other beers? The knockout hopping, um, going more so going more softly at the initial hopping at the beginning of the boil yeah, and trying to load it up kind of midway to the tail end of the boil. So mm. almost like, um, you know, it's not completely late hopping, but you're still getting IBUs from those, but you're also getting a lot more hop flavor. So one thing that I think is really cool and a way to another way to make lagers very approachable and new to people is to have some new age hop character built into them because I mean, it's obviously a very popular style, and obviously in America, you know, IPAs are still king, but if we can find a way to 
build in a cohesive but you know pronounced hop character into these beers should be a new way to expose people to how hops can be portrayed but also get them into lager brewing so it's a kind of a mission of mine to kind of blend both worlds and kind of show what can be done so sure sure yeah. well let's uh let's change gears and talk about uh you, you know s- some other things that you've learned lately as you've been brewing before we do that abs commercial is a full service brewery outfitter proud to offer brew houses tanks and small parts to brewers across the country they stock equipment ranging from three barrels to 90 barrels and offer custom designed equipment up to 900 barrels contact one of their brewery consultants today at sales at abs-commercial.com to discuss your brewery project, ABS Commercial, we are brewers. Also, ready to get into canning but not sure where to start, Twin Monkeys Beverage Systems has helped hundreds of breweries around the world tailor packaging solutions that meet the unique needs of each brewery. Pioneering many new technologies like integrated liquid nitrogen dosing, expandable canning machines, and automated fill tuning, Twin Monkeys continues to push the boundaries of what is possible and what is necessary. See their lineup at www.twinmonkeys.net. So, Neil, uh, you know, are there any other brewing projects or beers that you've been working on lately that have, uh, you know, posed some interesting challenges or that uh, have taught you something or that you've been learning from? Um, so obviously, you know, the Belgians are cool. Um, for Thanksgiving, took my first trip to Belgium. So it's like, see these beers you get exposed to, you know, back home, you get them mostly in bottle, but, sure, sure. um, getting to drink them a little bit more fresh over there. You know, I think any brewer makes their first trip to Belgium. It's a big excursion, you know, they come back inspired. So definitely want to go a little bit further into that within reason so that sure. we can, explore that, but also do what we need to do for production. But, you know, uh, something that we're trying to grow in 23 and 24 is obviously our barrel program. We have the Helm's Deep release that we do every December, but I want to start building more layers of flavor into our uh, barrel program with, you know, some wheat-based stouts, some rye stouts, just to be able to... Uh, accent certain blends and have a little bit more complexity down the road obviously it takes time but um that's kind of a big focus for mine in 23 and 24 is to build that program so we can have these beers mainly for tap room releases but um it's gonna be really cool to uh have a lot of uh flavors to pull from in the barrel program um a few different threads on barley wine as well um with the ninth anniversary beer Went full English barley wine. It was our first high gravity we brewed here at the Imaginarium, but wanted to barrel it, gave it just the right amount of time, came out really well. Definitely want to uh, explore that and brew more of those over on the production system, which come out a little bit differently than it did off our two vessel system here. But um, yeah, yeah, that's kind of a big focus is just growing the clean barrel program. Sure. Sure. You need to tackle the barley wine. Uh, you know, where'd you, how'd you build a recipe for that? And uh, where'd you find the inspiration? And then, you know, how did you go about building something that was going to be interesting and also a three taverns beer? Right. Um, so in my previous experience at Wrecking Bar, we had our sprinkler head barley wine that we brewed, I think three or four batches of in my time there. Um, you know, and that one was heavy on Maris Otter, obviously good touch of Munich and, I think four different uh, crystal malts of varying color. 
and a lot of sugar to boost the gravity. So I wanted sure. to play elements off of that. But, um, you know, for our ninth anniversary, it was Maris Otter, some amber malt, surprisingly, and I think just a little bit of Crystal 60 and then some sugar to kind of boost the ABV, but also make it drinkable. I find that a lot of these English barley wines can be a little bit syrupy at times. Yeah, and yeah. I don't personally like that. I like to, uh, you know, I want it to be something you can have it's a full the, glass the, of. The thick stout influence is right. cre creeping over into barley wine, isn't it? It is. And I mean, we have a thick stout that we're releasing this weekend too. With a, It's a triple mash Helm's Deep. Which, triple mash, okay. Right. We can talk about that in a bit. But um, yeah, it's just classic English barley wine. Um, English yeast, uh, cooler fermentation to keep the esters down. But um you know, just wanted to see what amber malt could really do to add that toasty complexity. But I think it was like 2% of the grain bill. But um, Amber malt? Amber malt, Maris Otter, Munich, and I believe Crystal 60. And I have to look back at the recipe. But yeah, it's just that. We did multiple mashes. So we would take our mash ton as full as it would go, which on our system here, it's 1,200 pounds. Um, fill our boil, cuddle up halfway with that. Start boiling it clean out the mash done, mash in again, blend first runnings in off the second mash into that so it's a full kettle, and then boil for six hours. So it's on a two-vessel system. That was a long day, but you just get a much more rich, refined, more uh, character, or a much more high-character finished product with that. So and that's something that I've learned, just the reiterative mashing where, yes, you're leaving some sugars behind. You could do a more sessionable beer behind right, that, right. but... We didn't have a vessel to put the wort into for the second running, so we just went for it. And uh, we served some of it fresh. It was a big hit, surprisingly. Um, but I think English barley wine is much better coming out of bourbon barrels. So we've got a good contact to get us Willet barrels. And uh, I was Willet eight years, so we saw those available. We got as many as we could. So that was, that was a big part of our barrel program in 2022. It was a lot of Willet eight year. Um, I know our guy's getting a fresh Willet truck in tomorrow, so we're going to find out exactly what he has, and that's probably going to be a big thing for uh, 23 and probably 24 as well. So You guys in the south with your easy ac easier access to those Kentucky bourbon barrels. It's nice. We can make a road trip out of it if we want to, but sometimes it's easier just to uh, call a guy, and he ships him to you. So sure, sure. But let's talk about the you know broader influence of you know Belgian style brewing and uh, you know amongst all of the styles. Like I you know right. I know you've done barrel aged Belgian style beers before, you right? Know, and of course now even Belgian brewers are making yeah barrel aged Belgian style beers. Right. It's strange when like you know you Americans do something weird and then you know the Belgians go oh, hey we should do that too and then, then yeah. it all happens. Um, you know, but but obviously in this era of brewing now and everything from hazy IPA we're seeing this focus on yeast and some of these techniques in terms of, of you know, building haze and stability that, uh, I mean, are, they're very common, uh, right. you know, like, I mean, there's not a lot of, I mean, you could look at hazy IPA as being a hoppy wit beer if you really wanted to, it's not that far off. Right. I mean, um, as far as the way the yeast stays in suspension, you know, um, that is something that Belgium certainly had going for them when they came out with that style years ago. But, um, as far as the Belgian influence and what we're doing now, think you kind of have to look at Belgians in general as the like original innovators, like the original people that would put adjuncts into beer, sure. albeit like very subtle spicing, but it's like they were almost the first brewing culture to explore that. 
And certainly in America now, you see Such that a nice happen. contrast to their neighbors uh, right. to, their, to their east who are right. They would laugh at that, and it's like yeah. we'll never do that. But, the Belgians are always yeah, anything goes as right. long as it's good. As long as, as, long it's, as it's good, but you also think they also have the balance of the finished product in right. mind. So right. there is a note of subtlety that they have to approach every recipe with, and you know you see what Americans are doing now, where it's very big extreme how loud the flavor can be i think that there's still room for that but also see maybe some brewers approaching like how do we still do that but keep it in check and start like almost pulling it back some you know to have it be a beer that you can have a full glass of while still exploring new adjuncts new processes for infusions etc it's really cool to see where it's at it's like we've kind of gone really far and there's still room for that but there has to be some level of approachability with these beers too. So, and I think that's a big thing with what you see in Belgian style brewing. It's uh, how approachable the beer can be, but also maximizing flavor from yeast components to how whatever you're adding to it works with that and almost enhances it. So, yeah. And, and if I could just throw in a, a, a little point about his, uh, just the breadth of what, Neil is able to do because what he hasn't talked about is the hazy IPA and the IPA, and he's one of the best IPA makers in the Southeast. Uh, he he made a name for himself at the Wrecking Bar when he was there for uh, early in Atlanta for his hazy IPAs. His uh, his apprentice brewer at the time is now the head brewer at Trillium. So just as a, as an aside, if you want to have a conversation with him about uh, anything hazy, you can get some good stuff there too i was kind of where i was going on that uh yeah you, you know so let's talk about that uh sure. you know, so you jumped on on that again using that expressive yeast focused uh right you know, I, um approach to brewing yeah it seems to fit uh, and you know i love drawing like looking at it this way because looking at it from that direction is a different way of looking at this as some evolution right of west coast ipa which really isn't necessarily it was kind of the what seems like the antithesis of West Coast, where at the time where people started realizing how popular they were going to be, I think that we were still at the tail end of the IBU wars, like 2005, 2010, in that time frame. But uh, yeah, I think the first hazy IPA I brewed was 2015 at Wrecking Bar, which yeah. again, pub style brewing. So you can be a little bit more flexible. You can just make a decision right then on stuff to brew. Um, but yeah, we... Brewed one, we knew that there was English yeast involved, some of these more fruity, tropical hops. So right, right. I think our first one was Citra, Mosaic, and Azaka. So kind of a easy combo. You see it all the time now. But, um, you know, we went 20% Pilsner from uh, Canada Malting, or 80% uh, Pilsner, excuse me, and then 20% Flaked Oats, kind of just like a standard percentage you would see with a beer like that. But, yeah, we knew there was a low-temperature whirlpool, hadn't heard anything about biotransformation at the time right but uh you know i'm a big believer in the low temperature whirlpool and that polyphenolic reaction that happens with the hops right, and the protein right. where it's a stable hay so if you know my work was always super clear post boil and that was a two vessel system so we had to run our work through the heat exchanger back into the kettle similar to how you would kettle sour i guess on that yeah. but so we were kettle souring before that but it's like why can't we use that technique with this style of beer and it worked out and I believe the initial beers were two pounds per barrel in the whirlpool and two and a half pounds per barrel post fermentation in the dry hop. So 
pretty uh, low-key hopping rates compared to what you're seeing now. Sure. Um, so that was the Juice Willis IPA series, which <laughs> became a yeah. whole series of names. They got super fun. Um, they're still doing them too. Sure, so sure. Uh, my buddy Tim is a brewer over there now, and yeah. he's keeping the story going, which is good to see. But What does Hazy IPA look like for three taverns right now? It's um, So we're using a more robust base malt. We're going a pearl malt from Thomas Fawcett. Huh. Uh, I figure if it works for the Alchemist and Hetty Topper, it's like, why don't we try to incorporate that into what we're doing? Um, lots of malted oats. Um, we've experimented with uh, the naked oats, the golden naked oats, and the malted oats. I prefer the malted because there's already so many flaked uh, grains going into these beers that it almost keeps the grain bed a little bit fluffier. You get a better mm. runoff, and we've seen better extract when we do those. Yeah. So, uh, But yeah, Thomas Fawcett Pearl Malt. I prefer Canada malting for their malted oats. I think it's a little bit cleaner. Mm. Um, wheat malt, flaked oats. We've experimented with chip malt to, if we want to get even more body into it and yeah. get a little bit more of that like clean sweetness. Um, but yeah, I mean, how much chip malt is the the right amount? Um, the most I've experimented with is up to three percent. Okay. I don't want it to get too far in the way. I still like the uh, classic way of getting the uh, haze from the oats and the wheat and. Uh, you know, I've yet to do one not using flaked oats, but that could be something we try out next time. Just going uh, pearl malt and uh, malted oats completely, see what that would do. But we're using a similar approach where we drop the temperature in the whirlpool. Um, previously, we'd hop a little bit heavier in the whirlpool. I've actually gone towards a pound, or barrel, a pound per barrel or less in the whirlpool. We're still getting really great haze stability off of that. But... Uh, even softer bitterness, which I know is what the consumer is looking for in these beers. And if you're going for that much of a hopping rate in the whirlpool, it allows for more room in the fermenter and post-fermentation. So um, we're going upwards of four to six pounds per barrel on a standard like seven or 8% hazy IPA here. Yeah. Um, we've experimented with the thialized yeast from uh, Omega yep. and Berkeley. I think we were one of the first breweries in Georgia to get the Phantasm powder in. Yeah. So my buddy Gavin up at uh, Trillium, he got me in touch with Joss from Garage Project. Yep. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's a great product. It's not the only thing I want to focus on. I think it's really cool, like the science behind it and where the product comes from and what it does. Um, We've got a great episode of the podcast with Joss talking about Phantasm. If everyone right. wants to dig deeper into that. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's super cool. And we still have a little bit left from that. But, yeah. you know, if we're going to have a few hazies on, I want to show range. So it's like not everything's going to be thialized. I like to sure. have yeast. We're using 1318 for our house yeast. Um, we typically get it off of our bright day coming. It's our uh, hazy IPA that we brew over in Decatur. So anytime we have a batch from Decatur, I'll crop yeast off of that, make sure it's good with the viability, bring it over here, and we'll, we'll use it on a few different beers. So it's, um, you know, pretty standard approach, but, you know, we've done the biotransformative dry hopping where it's during the fermentation. And I found that when you're adding your dry hops during the fermentation, you get a slightly better yield in the beer because the yeast and the hops are flocculating together, not a post-firm dry hop where you have to crop the yeast off first if you wanted to reuse it and then put your hops in. So you're almost like losing about three-fourths to one barrel on our 10-barrel batch to uh, 
you know, do a post-fermentation dry hop, but mm. I almost think it's a little bit more predictable if you do it post-fermentation, but I also appreciate the science of bringing these fruitier flavors out that you see with a uh, active fermentation dry hopping. So sure, sure. We do it both ways. That's kind of the thing that's cool about having the, uh, the Imaginarium is we can just experiment and try a different process each time. We could try a hop combo one way. We could also try it a couple times down the road where it's just same combo, same ratios, dry hop slightly differently. So sure, sure. Uh, Are there hops that you tend to lean on in hazy IPAs more than others? You know, and not just for, from a flavor perspective, but also just from a, a performance perspective. I mean, there are certainly more haze positive hops than others. And, uh, right. you know, um, and I think it's also useful to talk about them in, in the technical sense and the way that they work, not just in the, the right. kind of flavor and sensory perspective. Um, well, obviously we have great Citra that we selected. So, and when we were selecting, we asked for the uh, highest uranium that we could get yeah. so that it would perform well in the fermenter during the uh, active fermentation dry hopping. Yeah. But um, Citra, I mean, everybody's using that. Um, we really like our lot. Uh, we have a great lot coming in as well. Um, really fond of the New Zealand hops because I feel like they sure. have that funky terroir that, you know, lots of tropical fruit, a little bit of that diesel-y quality, but um, very great hay stability when you're dry hopping with hose. And I find them to be a little bit softer than the uh, Australian hops. But yeah, we have a core beer here now. It's called our Hazy Bird IPA and it's very Nelson Sauvignon forward. And it's our first time working with um, Hop Revolution, which is a partner with Crosby. Yep. And uh, they grow theirs in a slightly different region. It produces a touch more fruitiness out of it. And we've not experimented with a active fermentation dry hop with that just yet, but it has great oil content and provides a uh, nice pear peach fruitiness post fermentation, but we're going to keep actively using that to uh, experiment with what we want to uh, do in the uh, fermenter. So it's um, trying to think, take a pause for a second. No, that's okay. Those New Zealand hops, you know, I've, I find it so interesting, even within our, our, our blind judging panel, um, how interestingly polarizing that they can be because right. I am a fanatic for, for New Zealand hops. I cannot get enough. I will take all the Nelson Sauvin, right. uh, you know, and yet, sometimes we'll put those beers in front of, of judges, you know, and they are experienced beer drinkers and experienced beer judges, you know, and yet, uh, you know, there's just a character like it, they just have to hit the right people at the right time. It's and a, otherwise they can, you know, they can just be weirdly polarizing, like from a, you know, do you, do you get some of that sense here too? I mean, uh, yeah, we have are to, consumers now savvy enough to like see those and say that is for me or that isn't for me. I think you see that now in Atlanta. It's like we've been doing this long enough now that the clientele in Atlanta has become more educated with, you know, what hops they like, what hops they don't, what what makes a good hazy IPA, what does not. Um, but I think it's just a polarizing uh, group of hops to begin with. Um, you either love it or you hate it. And people like I lean on the side. It's like I like that diesel-y kind of a funky tropical uh, aspect you get from a lot of these hops, but it could also be the same reason that people don't like it. And I also see those people don't like hops like Simcoe, you know, where they have some similarities with that just danky cattiness, you know? So, 
when you use them, do you find ways to blend them in ways that, uh, you know, prov- provide some more familiar hooks for people so that they can, you know, at least find some flavor? Like, they might provide a note rather than yeah. being the entire driver. Right. Um, you know, if we're trying to make a very Nelson sovereign forwarded beer, obviously that's going to be the main hop, but we'll get our ratios with some familiar hops like Citra. People love that. And uh, Simcoe and Mosaic. I think those are just great blender hops that um, provide familiarity for people and allow you to kind of go a little bit more heavy handed with some of these New Zealand and or Southern Hemisphere hops, but um, they all kind of blend very well, but we just accent with those. Sure. Sure. Let's talk about, uh, you know, is there, you know, over the last year or two, you mm-hmm. know, you've been you've been brewing a lot. You brew on a production scale, right? You brew here on a uh, on a, a you know a test and pilot uh, scale sure. at the Imaginarium. Um, talk to me about some of the more like interesting things you've discovered through that process. The you know something you might have found unexpected that uh, you know that through your process or you know pushed you into problem solving right. in a way that uh, you know was kind of unexpected or unusual. Sure. Um- well, obviously coming from the 30 barrel uh, approach on our production system, one thing I found that was astonishing was how much less uh, volume wise hops need to go into the kettle. Uh, you get a much better utilization of the hops and you get a lot more IBU driven uh, components from it and also better yields off of it. But we found that, you know, we can use a lot less hot side and it Allows you to use the hops, especially is that the, just because the way that the you know, is it, you know is the way the kettle is built. That specific, you know, I think it's that, and also just the volume of liquid that yeah. the smaller amount of hops is in, you just get a lot more surface area, a lot more uh, just overall extraction potential from the system on the production scale. Whereas um, on our ten barrel Creveller at the Imaginarium, it's a uh, you know, pub style, we've, it's been more uh, familiar hopping rates for me when my, right, with my background right. as a pub brewer. It's felt more in tune to get the beers dialed in on this system first, but my efforts needed to be focused on getting the production system dialed in. And that went from hopping rates to adjusting water profiles. That was definitely something I worked on quite a bit at first, and it's something I certainly like to focus on a lot. It's like if the water's not built for the beer, then let's design the water profile. It'll get the beer where it get, needs to be. So uh, obviously getting on board was with three taverns, getting used to the flow of everything, getting used to the setup, how to move liquids around, that kind of thing to be able to safely work. All the while I was doing my homework to uh, look at the recipes, drinking the beers, and like what would I like to see the beers like migrate towards as far as drinkability, balance, approach, expression, minerality, all of that. Um, And slowly start sprinkling that in over time so that the consumer, it's like, my thought was they wouldn't notice it at first, but like slowly start shifting the uh, expression of the beer over time so that after three or four months, we had changed the recipe, the water profile at least. And, you know, it's a- Talk to me about what beer- is there an example of beer that you did that with? I'm curious. So over time, really, you made right. small tweaks, but mostly to a water profile. Yeah, water profile and uh, dry hopping of certain beers. And uh, one of the biggest beers was Night on Ponce, which the initial water profile on that was very calcium chloride forward. Yeah. Gives a big round softness. You get the calcium, which helps with yeast health, flocculation. There's a lot of good benefits to it. And we still use quite a bit of it in Ponce, but... 
uh, I wanted to kind of drive the bitterness a little bit more home without adjusting, like adding more hops to the beer. So yeah. we slowly went to a more balanced water profile. I believe it was 130 ppm sulfate and 115 chloride. So rode that train for a little while, got the uh, beer to stay consistent that way. And then started migrating it more towards a very gypsum heavy forward yeah. water profile. And it gives it a little bit of that snap, but still yeah. super balanced, super approachable. And uh, just has a very nice uh, minerality that just pairs well with the bitterness that um, the IBU charge up front, it's a CO2 extract and a touch of magnum. So it's like we didn't really change that at all, but just trying to have the water work with the beer and not clash with it at the same time. Sure, sure. So, um, another thing we changed. I'm curious if there's that customer's like, yeah, the, the, the water component of this just doesn't taste like it used to. I mean, if that's they, awesome though. Yeah. If they, uh, if they notice that they can come do sensory with us for sure. Hell yeah. Hell um, yeah. but yeah, also the dry hop process on Ponce, yeah. um, something we changed, wanted it to be nice and clear. And also I was very worried about hop creep and diastole. Sure, sure. So we started reducing our temperature once it, the beer was at terminal. Uh, down to 62 degrees to force some yeast flocculation right. so we could reuse the yeast we could get a nice healthy pitch go right back into a fresh batch um but also my thought behind that was it would kind of prevent any type of hop creep or vdk production from hop creep so reducing the temperature a touch and uh dry hopping similarly um similar rates i think it's uh 1.3 pounds per barrel um something that was not being done before, but we brought in tune was to uh, rouse the beer with CO2 as the tank is open. Right. So it's uh, kind of kicking the hops up as you're adding them, but also purge purging your headspace. So just found a more efficient way to get that hop flavor and aroma we were going for, but also end of the day, having a lower dissolved oxygen, um, finished product, better hop expression all around. And, you know, I feel like we finally got... Ponce in particular, uh, really dialed in where it needs to be, but we're dry hopping differently with our hazies where we're keeping those at, you know, we'll warm the beer up throughout fermentation so that you get a touch of that ester profile that kind of pairs well with the fruitiness of the hops. Um, but we're dry hopping our hazies slightly warmer. So we're actually going 70, 71 degrees with our dry mm. hop temperature on those beers. And I find that it gets a lot more fruitiness out of those hops and you kind of get where you're, the hops you're putting into it you're getting that aspect of it for those beers so like our west coasty approach if you call it for a ponce lower temperature dry hop yeah hazy ipa we're going to do those a little bit warmer and almost at the tail end of fermentation not at uh, uh terminal gravity so you get a right. touch of biotransformation but as far as our uh Cellar crew, I know they appreciate adding the hops tail into fermentation so you don't have any geysers, anything like that from right. your hops going in actively. So it's, uh, how do we get the flavor profiles that we're going for, but also make the beer the best way possible. Sure, so. sure. Well, we're getting on in time here. Let's zoom out a little bit and look sure. at the big picture. Um, Brian, what do you hope, uh, what's, your, what's the end goal for Three Taverns? What do you hope to achieve? What does success look like? And uh, when will you know that you've you've uh, achieved it? Wow, that's a big question. It is um, it's a loaded question. That's the way we. Get, I mean, we got to finish yeah. it off this way. It's, okay, it's a, it's a classic question here on the Craft Beer Brewing Podcast. 
Uh, so maybe I'll, I'll share um, the mission statement I wrote years ago before I started the brewery, and it's to unlock and inspire the pursuit of a fuller and more transcendent experience of life, inviting our friends and neighbors to join us at the table of discovery and raise a glass in gratitude and merry celebration. So if I accomplish that, where people um, gather together, uh, but they discover something, I, I always um, love the idea that um, beer uh, at its best is a participant in these special moments that happen where people gather together and they share their lives and beer can kind of help elevate the experience, actually lubricate and encourage the experience of real sharing. Um, so if we can do at the same time uh, introduce people to something new, something that uh, excites their mind and their palate, um, while being a participant in something that is uh, exciting their spirit and uh, their emotions, then I've, I've accomplished all I wanted to accomplish when I started this brewery. So, Well, fantastic. That is a great place to bring this to a close. For nearly 30 years, G&D Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. ProBrew has the equipment, systems, and technology to take your brewery to the next level. Think outside the puree box and let your brand stand out with Old Orchard's Craft Concentrate Blends. American Canning provides packaging supplies at competitive prices. In order quantities catered to craft, ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery outfitter for brewers across the country. And Twin Monkeys continues to push the boundaries of what is possible with their packaging solutions. Of course, if you've enjoyed this podcast and all the others, go to beerandbrew.com. Click on that subscribe button, support the magazine, support us, and help us continue to bring you these great conversations. Um, Brian, Neil, if people want to reach or you know, find more about Three Taverns, where do they find more about you all? Uh, our website, threetavernsbrewery.com, and then they can follow us on uh, social media, Instagram, at Three Taverns or at 3T Imaginarium. Fantastic. Well, thank you both for joining me on the podcast. It's been sure. wonderful talking to you. Cheers. Thank you for Cheers. having us. This yeah. has been great. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. 